Hello, and welcome to the Secular Overeaters and Friends podcast, a place for supportive people who want to control their eating without a focus on God. For additional information about abstinence without God, please visit secularovereaters.org. And now, let's hear from this week's featured speaker. So, uh, still Alan, a food addict. And just to sort of recap, um, for those of us who are secular, which is a term I use rather than atheist and agnostic, it's simpler to say, um, the goal here is to figure out what works to help us be abstinent, to share what works for each other so we can all get more ideas and information to help us not compulsively overeat, the shared common goal of Overeaters Anonymous. Um, Okay, so what I'm going to do is, like I said, I'm going to tell my story and specifically talk about what works for me. And if I say something that you think might help you, feel free to write it down. We all have computers and word processors in front of us. Then as you go through it, if you think about the things that work for you, also write them down. Because when it comes time to make it the workshop and you share, you can share what works for you and we can collectively hear each other's wisdom. And particularly if you do something that's a little unique, like probably we all go to meetings, so you don't need to say I go to OA meetings, you know, but if you do something a little more unique, um, then that's probably might be more likely to help somebody. Um, And then if there's time, I'm happy to do some Q&A at the end. Um, So now to start, okay. So I have been in OA. Um, This month will be my 31st year in OA. Um, My top weight was 335 pounds. Let's see if this works. This is me at 335 pounds. I think you guys can see this. Here's another one. You can see, you know, what I look like. I'm about 150 pounds under my top physical weight. Uh, Let's see. Here I am. Uh, I'm not quite a goal weight, but you can just sort of see the kind of pictures I used to like to take. I was a shameless binger eater. Uh, Here's another one, you know, dressed up a little better in a suit, but still obviously, um, you know, my waist was 56 inches. Now it's about 36 inches. Um, So uh, just a little bit about my background. Um, I was um, lost my dad as an infant. And I was raised by my mother and grandmother. Um, My mother struggled with mental illness, maybe schizophrenia, severe depression. You know, things weren't that well understood in the 1960s. Um, But what was clear was she couldn't hold a job. And so I was raised by my mother and grandmother. And because she couldn't hold a job and we didn't have a father with any income, uh, we lived on public assistance welfare. And um, it was in New York City. And I was in basically a ghetto neighborhood where people who you know had no money or very little money lived. And what was challenging about that is it was a really violent place. Um, I was beat up multiple times. I was once uh, bashed in the head with a baseball bat as hard as someone could swing it, almost died. I remember once a kid who was four or five years older than me that had gotten out of reform school for stabbing someone to death, having me in a headlock and bashing me in the face as many times as he could till the police came. Um, Just multiple times I got the shit beat out of me just for being like a fat little white kid in a neighborhood where I looked different than everyone else. And so it was just scary. My physical safety and security were really scary. I would go to school and think how to get there, how to go certain blocks in certain ways 
So I risked my, you know, minimize my chances of being beaten up going to school. I mean, it was inner city, you know, people squatting in burnt out buildings with plywood over the windows and gangs and, you know, always police cars going off and sirens in the background. It was a, a rough ghetto inner city. So um, there was this deep fear just for my safety, you know. Um, and then my mother with her mental health issues um, was often very depressed and um, started to become suicidal where she uh, multiple times attempted to take her own life. And then starting when I was like maybe uh, like 10 or 11 years old, she started asking me to take my life with her. And I just have memories of being a little kid and my mother would come to me and tell me, our life is horrible. You're getting beat up. We're poor. You know, this is a horrible neighborhood. And it just doesn't make sense to keep living. And she would hand me a bottle of sleeping pills and give me a glass of water and say, if you just take these, you'll go to sleep and it'll be all over. I'll take them afterwards and we'll both be free of this hell. And I would just cry and beg, just beg for my life. I did not want to die. I did not want her to die. And it was just um, a horrific thing for a child to go through, you know, just a horrific thing, I suppose, for anyone to go through. And so I tell you all that so that at the earliest age, I turned to food. At the earliest age, if I could find something at that candy store, the ice cream truck, you know, in the refrigerator, just um, whatever I could find to make me feel good from usually sugar, you know, because um, sugar was the thing for kids to feel better. And, you know, it was just um, just really hard. And so I honestly, at some level, I think I'm grateful for the food because if there wasn't food, I might not be here today, you know. And so um, when I was 13, my mother overdosed on sleeping pills. It's like a third or fourth attempt. And she didn't die, but because of multiple overdoses, she lost parental custody of me. They put her in a psych hospital, kind of a notorious snake pit called Creedmoor in New York City. Maybe you've heard of it. It's one of the worst hospitals that probably we've had. Um, and uh, I, went, I, went, I got shipped off to a foster home. Shortly before that, my grandmother had a stroke and then died. So I, um, by 13, I'm sitting in a foster home with no siblings, no parents, no aunts, no uncles, not even a first cousin, you know, like nothing. And uh, a refrigerator, but a refrigerator, you know, or access to stores. And so uh, food just became my thing. I got up to 200 pounds by age 14. Um, you know, I, the whole husky thing, maybe you remember that term if you're of my generation, you know, I hated that word. I felt like a fat dog, you know, and wear these husky clothes. It was just such a shaming thing. I remember once I needed to get a, a jacket and tie for something, going into one of those stores, they used to call them big and big men shops, you know, uh, big and tall, I guess. And I remember the guys that ran it always seemed to be like happy fat people like somehow they had come to that and i remember walking in and the guy literally patted me on my 300 plus pound stomach and said oh wow you've got a double baby in there don't you you're so fat and i just wanted to die i just wanted to die when i was a kid my mother used to tell me that i was getting so fat that if i got lots of fat cells i'd be fat for life because she had this thing maybe it's true that you get fat cells multiplying they never go away and then she would tell me this thing. She said there was this famous actor named Fatty Arbuckle from, I don't know, the 1930s. And she said, I'm going to be like Fatty Arbuckle. She said, Fatty Arbuckle is so fat 
that when he rolled over, he crushed his wife to death and suffocated her from his obesity. And I looked it up. That's not true. But, you know, so it was like just burned into my brain. I'm going to just be have this fat, horrible life. You know, it was just so burned into my brain in so many dysfunctional ways. Um, in any case, about the only thing that really, I think, kind of kept me alive, honestly, was school. I did well in school. And if a teacher gave me an A or, you know, a 95 or whatever, it was like a validation. Like, I must be okay. This thing, school told me I was good. And thank God for school. You know, so I worked hard to get good grades because it was like my thing. And um, I um, graduated school early at 16 and I got a scholarship to Cornell. And I thought, you know, I am off to make a new life. I'm out of this foster home. I'm out of this crazy childhood. I'm out of the ghetto. I just thought I'm just going to make a new life. And um, I even lost weight. I went on my first diet, like when I was 15 or so. And I got down to like 165 pounds. And I just thought to myself, this is my new life. And I went off to college. And the first thing I discovered was unlimited food. You know, those uh, those uh, cafeteria meal plans. And I lost it. You could just go up there and fill your tray with as many desserts as you wanted. I remember going back to the table with the other you know, students and they would look at my tray and they would see like three desserts, and three entrees. And they would say, oh, how nice you brought food for the others. And I was like, no, this is all for me. I was like a shameless binger. You know, there was no hiding. I was just like, I'm a shameless binger. And long story short, um, I destroyed my college career. I, I cut classes. I didn't take tests. I um, got put on probation, almost expelled. Um, and I doubled my weight. I entered college at 165 pounds and I came out at 335. I literally gained 170 pounds of college, barely graduated, horrible GPA. You know, I had a good brain, smart kid. I just burned it up with food and I complimented it with alcohol and marijuana and whatnot. But food was the thing, you know, food was the thing. Um, I come out of OA, excuse me, come out of college and move to this area. And I learn about this thing called OA. I'm uh, 20 years old, I graduated early. And I go to an OA meeting and I walk into a church in Arlington. First, it's in a church. I'd never been in a church. I, I wasn't religious. I was technically Jewish, but like very non-Jewish, Jewish, just the food part, really. Um, and I uh, go into this church, and then I walk into a basement, and it's all women. I'm the only guy. I'm 20. They're 40, 50, 60. And they're talking about God, and they read the steps, and it says God, and then they talk about Jesus Christ. And I'm like, oh, this has to be a Christian group. It's in a church. They're talking about God. They're talking about Jesus. God is in their literature. It's a Christian weight loss group, probably for middle-aged women, you know? And like, oh, this is, this is not my club. And I went off for seven more years and continued to try to exercise and eat. And I could tell you the shit I tried, but you, you guys know it all, you know? And then when I was 27, someone again pointed me toward OA. And for this time, it happened to me at a community center, but wasn't a church. And I went in and I didn't hear any God talk. Maybe I came after they read the steps or it wasn't on the wall or something. And there was a woman talking about how she used to eat too much and be fat. And she doesn't do that anymore. She's not fat. I was like, oh, you've got my attention. And I knew there were other fat people out there, right? That's obvious. But I never quite knew what they did or what happened to them. And this woman shared, I always remember it. 
She said she was in a restaurant one time, and before they bust the plates at the tables, you know, people leave and there's leftover pieces of food at the tables, she would go around and grab half-eaten food off of other people's tables, you know, an uneaten slice of pizza or a clean half of sandwich or something. And I had done that. I had totally done that. And I had never told another human being that I'd done that. It's a very shameful, gross thing to do, you know? And I was like, oh my God. Um, these people are like me. These people are like me. They are insane with food. It just drives them, drives them. So I kept coming back. You know, I just kept coming back. And for a while, I didn't know what I was doing, but I went to these things called meetings. Um, And then I learned there was this thing called a sponsor, you know? And uh, I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I started thinking about that. And then I also started observing at these meetings, people that just didn't talk about food, like eating, not eating. It wasn't just like a food discussion support group. People were talking about other things. And they were talking about really personal things, like bad marriages and relationships with children and parents that were difficult and losing jobs and all sorts of social stuff that was difficult and hard and authentic. And I've never heard people share about this stuff, you know, like I had very few friends and people talked about, I don't know, sports or news or something, but no one talked about abusive childhoods or bad marriages or sexual abuse, you know? And so when I heard that and people safely talked about it, I said, wow, I should talk about my wounded stuff. And all of a sudden I started talking about that. I had a mother that asked me to kill myself that ended up in a psych hospital. I talked about that. I had the shit beat out of me as a kid and in a foster home as well. I talked about the fact that I'm an incest survivor and I was sexually abused as a child because it was a safe space. You know, it was a safe space. And I never told this to anyone. I mean, who would you share these things to if you didn't have a therapist or some close confidant, right? You wouldn't just share this with your workmates at lunch hour. So it became this safe space to share really vulnerable trauma from my past. And so that was incredibly helpful. Um, And then people would listen to me and come up to me and start to talk to me. And, you know, there's the term that um, marijuana is like a gateway drug to, you know, heroin and cocaine or whatever. Well, I felt like OA was a gateway for me to recovery. Because, you know, when I shared that I was an incest survivor, someone would say, you know, OA may not be able to do much for you on that one, really. But there's this thing called Survivors of Incest Anonymous, and they're all about that. You know, and you can find them on, you know, here's a meeting. And lo and behold, and I went there. And then when I described, you know, my mother with the suicide attempts, they'd say, you know, that may be a lot for anyone to OA to help you process. I mean, you might want to check out therapy. You probably qualify for a therapist. You know, and people would say things like this to me. And I'd go, oh, okay, okay. And I, so I started doing other things. You know, it was like the platform. But they said, when it comes to food, you're in the right place. You know, when it comes to compulsively overeating and why you're 300 pounds, this is your home. And so I kept coming back to this home. And I remember I heard this word sponsor. I said, okay, what's that about? And I learned that you ask these people to be your sponsor. My first sponsor, a guy named Mark, and he was what you would call a, a big book thumper. He came from like this AA tradition and he would take the first 164 pages of the big book and we would read it together like line by line, you know, and say, hey, you know, what was Bill Wilson thinking here? Why did he use a comma versus a semicolon? What was in Bill's mind? You know, and we would write about it and talk about it. And he worked me through the steps in a kind of a, an old school way, just from the AA book book, which was quite helpful, really amazingly helpful. 
And then um, I learned there was this thing called HOW, which maybe some of you know, H-O-W, honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. They're like a movement with an OA. OA has all these movements, a vision for you, you know, how 90-day OA, we have these little subsects in OA. So how's one of them? And I ended up there. And what they were about was really clean food, getting a food plan from a medical professional, writing it down, weighing and measuring it, calling it in every day, making three phone calls a day, um, doing readings and writings every day, talking to a sponsor at a very set time with a set format. It was kind of like super tools, you know, like really, really good, good, clean tools. And so I started doing that as well. And I did that for about 20 years. And lo and behold, between having this big book sponsor and this OA house sponsor and sort of working almost like two branches of OA, I lost my weight and I worked through the steps and my life started to get better. Now, I wish I could tell you I have 30 or 31 years of abstinence. And over the 31 years, I had several relapses. So I've been absent about 25 of the 31 years with three relapses in there. So my current back-to-back is a little under six. At one point, it was 14 and a half. And there's a whole story about relapse for me linked to depression, but that would be another workshop. So, but, um, but in any case, I'm very grateful to have the abstinence and the time um, that I do have. Um, so now to sort of a little bit get to what I think, what has worked for me at least, you know, and then hopefully it may help some others. Um, I often say if I was going to find two words to define OA, it would be structure and support. Structure is a set of things you really do, regularly do. You know, it's your, your scaffolding for life, the actions you do on a regular basis. And then support is getting help to do them, you know, because if we could just do it on our own, if there was just this thing, if you could just read the big book or read the steps or read something and that that was all you needed and you didn't need help, great. But for most of us, that doesn't seem to be the case. So we need help. That's the support. And I think that's the essence of OA. And I always say, someone says to me, if you're not getting abstinent, you either need more structure or more support or both and just figure out what they are and, you know, get what you need. Um, another way I like to think of it is um, abstinence is finding a set of actions and behaviors that allow me to not overeat and then making them habits. You know, just finding the actions and behaviors and make them habits. Just do them over and over again. It's, it's so much a program of repetition. Another way I like to think of it is recovery is finding the actions and behaviors that support abstinence, you know, and making them habits. Um, it's just such a repetition program. I think of it like exercise, right? If you want to be able to run a marathon, you first run a few miles a day, and then after a while, you get to do a little more and a little more, and you keep repeating it and repeating it until you get to your range. You know, if you want to be able to be stronger, you don't go to the gym and lift weights one day. You go to the gym three times a week over and over again. And with enough repetition, you get stronger. So if you want to strengthen your recovery, strengthen your ability to not compulsively overeat, you find the behaviors or actions that work and repeat them. Just repeat them. Um, So let me talk about the ones that work for me. And this is where, if anything I'm saying seems might help you, write it down. And then if you think of ideas of what works for you, also write it down to share later when we flip the workshop to you guys sharing. Um, okay, so let me talk first about food. It's really important for you to be clear about food um, and to be honest about food, you know, to be honest with myself and honest with other people, sponsors in particular, about food. Um, I 
need to regularly be inventorying my food. You know, there, there's always a little food monkey in my brain that thinks more is a little better. Food with more of the fun stuff is a little more interesting. I mean, I, I think when I take my last breath, you know, I'll say, hey, can I get extra dressing on that salad? You know, I mean, it's it's just going to be there. You know, I, I don't think that ever goes away. Maybe it does for some people. But being honest about it and getting support and not listening to those voices, you know. I mean, I walk into the bakery. I'm curious, but I quickly turn away or, if possible, not go on there. But my partner drags me there sometimes. Um, but, you know, just to, to, to know that about myself. Another part around food for me is what I call mindful eating. This has been an ongoing practice for me. Uh, I, you know, my joke was um, that if um, I finish my plate before my dog finishes her bowl, something's wrong. You know, just something's wrong. And my dog was a very fast eater, you know. And so just learning to eat slow and mindfully. You know, what I do these days is before I touch my food, I close my eyes and I imagine what's about to happen. What's the food I'm looking at? How will I eat it? I'll put my fork down between bites. I'll smell it. I'll taste it. You know, just just really try to be present for my meal, not inhale it like a dog, you know, which is really my history. I mean, I get these great binge foods and barely know I had them because they went down so fast, you know, when I was uh, in binge eating. And so twice a week, I pick a breakfast and try to make it last an hour, try to like put the fork down a little bit, read something, you know, and then go on. Just different ways to slow it down and eat in a mindful way and be aware of what's going on in my body. Um, and, and it's an ongoing practice, and, and which I do very imperfectly, but it helps me because um, I think of the disease is mindless eating. You know, when I was in disease, I was mindless. So now let's eat mindfully. Um, next is the steps. Uh, specifically, I want to talk about steps one, two, and three. Um, I take steps one, two, and three. If I do one thing every day, is I take step one, two, and three. Um, I do it in the shower. I'm big about like finding little prompts and tricks to make things easy and to a little bit do double duty. I'm going to shower every day anyway. So what am I doing in the shower? Just pondering whatever goes through my brain. Why don't I use it as recovery time? So for step one for me is I just imagine some of my worst binges. I play this videotape in my brain of what the disease was. I have a couple of go-tos. I remember once eating an entire half gallon of ice cream, literally in like 20 minutes. I opened up a second half gallon and called my sponsor in tears and she had me taking a little hose on the uh, the, uh, sink and uh, melt it with hot water. And I was in tears, like ice cream on my face, on my hands, I can't stop. And she's like talking me through it to got it done. I like play that video in my head. I play the video in my head. I was once in a house with seven other people. We all rented rooms in a big group house. I was evicted. Literally, I kept eating other people's food. And they literally, they would have a sign on the refrigerator, Alan, don't eat Mike's food. It's his dinner. And I would see that sign and eat Mike's dinner. Like, how bad is that getting? And they said, they said to me, Alan, you are fucking up our food. You have 30 days to be out of here. Like, I remember that is my step one. And, you know, there's other ones. So I just remember that. Um, for step two, I just think about the fellowship. Uh, some years ago, I was at the last World Service Conference. 1,200 people did a serenity prayer. I can't remember it was hand. I think it was holding hands. It was so powerful to see 1,200 people from around the world. So I'll just think of the fellowship, the, the Hollywood squares I'm now looking at, you know, from all over. 
but somehow we come together to do this. And that is something I can't do alone, but you guys together, we can. Step three, you know, is kind of a, a God laden step in the words, but I just think of it as to align with the greater good, just to align with the world around me. Sometimes the visual I use is if you think of the ocean having, you know, trillions of drops of water, and if any drop was fighting all the other drops, just bucking it, you know, almost like a cancer cell in a body, it wouldn't be doing so well. But if one drop of water was flowing with the waves, moving with the tide, you know, that drop of water goes well. So I just kind of want to flow well with the world around me. It's just kind of a metaphor, but, you know, just to be in sync with the world. That's how I think of step three. And so I do that. As soon as the hot water hits my head, boom, one through three. It's just a great way to uh, be in a shower for, for me. Um, I also in that shower ask each day to the universe to be free of judgment and control. I can be really judgmental over so many things. And, you know, judgment is saying it's right or it's wrong. This is the way it should be. And then control is trying to make it the way you judge it, you know? And I try to let go of judgment and control. My, I tell myself, until somebody gives me a black robe and a gavel, I'm not a judge. So I should just, you know, let go of judgment and control in all areas. Um, so that's steps one through three. Uh, sponsors. Um, I have two sponsors. I call one my food sponsor and the other my program sponsor. The food sponsor, um, basically, I text him things, do food accountability, say, oh, you know, at that restaurant, I think I probably made the, not didn't make the best choice. Next time I go to Kava, get this, not that. Do this, not that. You know, or little things, just like self-awareness, just tuning the food. Another program is my um, program sponsor. We get together a couple times a month for like a meal or a walk and just have more deeper talks about stuff, you know. Um, sometimes steppy stuff. I've worked the steps enough over the years that it's rare that I'm formally going through the steps again in that way, but I've done a number of times. Um, and then I sponsor three people. Um, I'd spend, I counted, I spend six hours a week talking to these three sponsees, you know, over the times of the week. So it's a fair amount of time uh, doing it, um, but it works. And what I find interesting is one of the people I sponsor is a devout atheist, or they say a card-carrying atheist. The second is what I call spiritual but not religious, you know, kind of like a, in that fuzzy ground, you know, like nature, life, good, kindness kind of thing. And the third is super Christian. He's an evangelical Pentecostal studying to be a Christian minister. I mean, as Christian as Christian can get, you know, speaks in tongues, you, you name it, like super Christian. You know, but what's amazing is it works, right? Like each one of them, we work together, you know, and I know what I can give and what they can give and it works, you know? So um, I, I think, think that's kind of cool. And my two sponsors, one is a former minister who became an atheist and the other one is a devout Christian, but they help me, you know? So I love how we can all help each other regardless of what our theologies or non-theologies are. Um, uh, literature. I read OA literature every day. I, I love Lifeline. Some stories fit better than others. I'm sad that, you know, it's, it's ending, but I have like years and years of back issues. So you can just read through them and they're around. You can get them. Um, and then I read other things. Sometimes I read program literature, non-program literature, whatever, whatever soothes my soul. Um, I exercise six or seven days a week. Exercise you know, if I would, if they were letting me add a tool to OA World Service, maybe someday they will, but I doubt it. I would make exercise a tool. It just makes me feel better about myself, my fresh air. 
Um, while I exercise, I listen to music, uh, usually bicycle on a little speaker. And I have found music that really is healing. And uh, it's not conference approved, I suppose. There's no such thing as conference approved music. But if anyone wants to email me sometime, I have found music that just is so healing. It makes me feel self-love, good about myself, gratitude, better about the world. It just It's just nurturing to my soul. And to combine it with exercise... Um, it's like my super tool for me is music, the right music. Um, I call it positive affirming music. Um, I meditate. I've been through different kinds of meditation. There's so many kinds. Um, I did TM for a while. I did mindfulness meditation. I now do this one. It's a little high tech. Put this thing on your head and it actually reads your brain waves, if you can believe. And then it tells you if you're quote, meditating well and gives you like information. I don't know what what to think of it, but I'm playing with that one. I don't know so much about meditation. Sometimes I think it's overrated, but um, but I do meditate because somehow it's in our culture. Um, this is something I do that's probably a little unique to me. Um, I call it my eight by three. By the way, everything I'm sharing is not invented here. Everything I'm sharing, I learned from somebody out there. You know, I'm just nothing's invented here. It's all what we learn from each other. So I do about try to come up with about three of each of these eight categories. First one is gratitude, just things I'm grateful for. Basics like being abstinent, being in a free country. It could be anything, but, you know, gratitude. Uh, second one is I, what went well the day before, just to look back on the day before and go, wow, got this done, had a nice time with that person. You know, what went well the day before? The third is from the day before, what didn't go so well? I call it let go and learn. What things should I let go of from yesterday, but maybe learn from them, you know? So let go and learn. Uh, the next thing is, if I could only get three things done today, what would they be? What would be the, if I could only get one thing done today, what would it be? Second, third? You know, and, and usually they're tangible things you know, around my professional life. Next one is three ways I can be of service. Three ways I can make the world a better place today. Uh, typically, it's OA stuff, but there's other things. Um, then there's three things I can't control, but I'd really like to. The most obvious for now is COVID. Oh, my God, Lord, I love COVID. Just go away from our world. But you know what? I don't have that superpower. Um, not to mention all sorts of other things, but that's been my big one lately. Um, then I think of three growing edges, three things today that I'm going to try to grow my edge. Uh, I'll just give you one example. Um, it's a simple one is I, I drink too much coffee. I just, you know, we have like a little vices, people chewing gum, diet coke for me, it's coffee. And so my goal is to be done with coffee by mid-afternoon. And so I just think about that, visualize that, put a little check in my calendar. I'm now like nine days in a row, which is a new record, you know. So just a growing edge. I mean, like one other example, one is to be calm. When my, I have a partner who sometimes pushes my buttons, amazing how partners do that, and to not react. When she pushes it, just let it be pushed. Don't push back. It's amazing how much better life goes when you don't counter-react to people. Um, so that's, uh, and the last one is um, internal validation. Three level things I say to myself. Just And probably this most important one is to say, Alan, I love you. I just love who you are. I honor where you came from, you know, just to really send a message of self-love to me, just to myself and just different things. Um, at night, I do the, some of you may have heard the A-E-I-O-U-Y. It's this little thing I've seen going around OA. A is abstinence and abstinence inventory. E is exercise. Did I exercise okay? I, 
how was I to others? Was I a good soul to others? Uh, or uh, so, sorry, how was I to myself? Was I good to myself? Was I did I take care of myself? That's the I. Oh, is others? How was I to others? Um, you is what can I uncover? Kind of reflect on the day, and what can I uncover? Was I resentful, fearful, selfish, dishonest? What can I uncover from the day, and why is grateful? More gratitude. I also sometimes do at night, Sam, kind of obsessed with these things, something I call a G4, which is gratitude, good stuff, glitches, and going forward. What am I grateful for? What was good today? What were my glitches? And what's going forward? It's similar to the morning one. Um, I journal just once a week for a half hour, just journal whatever comes out of my mind. Uh, make, I don't make a lot of phone calls beyond the sponsor, sponsee, but sometimes some. Um, I go to three meetings a week. Um, pretty active in service. I usually have service positions. I do things like this. Uh, sometimes I write articles for like Lifeline Innovation. I try to do some things a little bit beyond just my group. Um, another thing I do is something called a relapse prevention support group, which I could, if you're, anyone's interested, I could talk to you more offline. But basically, it's four of us that meet once a month and help you see warning signs of relapse and support each other to prevent it. It's a wonderful tool. Um, I do what I call active fellowship. Active fellowship for me is actively taking time to be closer to my fellows in more ways. So I'm in an OA men's book club, seven guys. We read a book together uh, once a month or either on Zoom. We really try to build a little fraternity or friendship. Uh, I'm in a, another group of a discussion group, four guys once a month. We have to get together for a topic and discuss a topic. And uh, I found three bicycling buddies in OA, three people in OA. About once a month each, we do a bike ride together. So I've just tried to really cultivate a way fellowship. It's, it's very helpful. Thank you for joining us today. To hear recordings of other speakers in this series, visit secularovereaters.org. And while you are there, please consider making a donation to support our work. <laughs>